This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast on Open Pediatrics. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today Dr. Patrick Kohanek. Dr. Kohanek is a distinguished professor of critical care medicine, the director of the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research, and the Aki Grenvik Professor and Vice Chair in the Department of Critical Care Medicine and Professor of Anesthesiology, Pediatrics, and Clinical and Translational Science, all at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Pat, welcome back to Open Pediatrics. Glad to be here and uh, support the remarkable thing that you have uh, that's really helped a lot of people here. As many in the audience knows, Dr. Kohanek is also the Emeritus Editor-in-Chief and Founding Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, the journal in our field. And even despite the fact that he had all of these duties, including the inaugural Editor-in-Chief role, he's also maintained a very active research program, as noted as the Director of the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research, and has had over multiple decades a funded program of research in cerebral resuscitation in children, and most recently published in the JAMA Open Network a long-awaited trial known as the ADAPT study, Approaches and Decisions in Acute Pediatric Traumatic Brain Injury Trial. This was the results of a trial investigating hypertonic saline or mannitol in the treatment of children with severe traumatic brain injury. And Pat, my first question to you is, why carry out a comparative effectiveness study in pediatric traumatic brain injury? Thanks, Jeff. That's a great question. And it really was uh, kind of the essence of the ADAPT trial. You know that in all of acute brain injury, there have been many clinical trials and short of clot retrieval and thrombolysis in adult stroke, really nothing has shown important, significant benefit across all of neurocritical care. One of the likely culprits to account for that is the fact that our background care is so heterogeneous in these diseases. And so to uh, take advantage of the heterogeneity, a comparative effectiveness trial allows you to let people do what they normally do and then let the statisticians sort out the variables and the confounders, allowing you to ask some interesting questions about current management. And to that end, Mike Bell, while he was the chief of neurocritical care here at uh, UPMC Children's of Pittsburgh, and uh, in collaboration with uh, Steve Wisniewski and his statistical team here also at, in the School of Public Health at Pitt, led a really phenomenal study that enrolled 1,000 kids with severe head injury at 44 international sites and funded by uh, NICHD and NINDS. And this trial then uh, is allowing us to understand our own current therapy. And you mentioned uh, hypertonic saline and mannitol, but I I would call it one little nubbin of what is going to emerge from ADAPT. I am fortunate to be the first author of the first paper, 
I guess I just got it to the finish line faster than some of the other people, but it's going to address, and I know of some other papers also, at least one very close to uh, the finish line also in revision. And so I think we're going to get a lot of interesting information and some answers from this style. And so that's the reason to, to do a comparative effectiveness trial. And if I could, Pat, what do the baseline characteristics of the patients in the study reveal about the exciting features of uh, ADAPT? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think also is really eye-opening is that, you know, when you do an RCT, you take, for example, back like the HACA trial of first hypothermia and adult cardiac arrest. They assessed thousands of patients to get a few hundred into that trial. And that's very common in an RCT. But it gives you what I call the filet mignon of that disease. And it's just a little slice. And it's a very specific slice. In contrast, ADAPT, you had minimal inclusion criteria, birth to 18 years of age, a diagnosis of TBI, an ICP monitor of standard care, a GCS less than or equal to eight, and exclusions were pregnancy. And if the ICP monitor was not placed in the site that did the ICU care, And, you know, there's no new intervention. Everyone gets enrolled in the trial and the consent was only to get long-term outcome. And so uh, 1,018 patients were uh, approached to get 1,000 patients in the study. That's real world care. And so boom, right away, that first diagram in it just, you know, knocks you over. If you're uh, used to an RCT, you say, holy smokes, we get a real denominator here. How often do you get a real denominator in these ICU diseases? Not very often. And so you look at some of the things, 18 and a half percent of the patients never received hyperosmolar therapy. And the patients were a little bit younger than most of the other reports seven and a half years versus about nine and a half or 10. The real kicker though, to me, was that in this study, 6.6% are penetrating injury and anywhere between six and almost 18% are abusive head trauma, depending on how you define it. And those patients are almost uniformly excluded from any treatment trial. And so now they're in there. This is the real denominator of what you're dealing with every day in the ICU. Remarkably, the GCS was very similar to other studies. For example, compare it to Jamie Hutchison's hypothermia trial a number of years ago. I think the GCS and that was also in the fives. But another thing that just really, again, gives you a real denominator, 8.3% of the patients in this study had had a cardiac arrest. And so their head injury with the ultimate second insult, you might say, short of herniation. And so yet they're still in ADAPT. And so this is what we really deal with at the bedside. Also, a little over 30% had a decompressive craniectomy and 34% had CSF diversion and about a third got hyperosmolar therapy in resuscitation, like in the field and that. So to me, these numbers are landmark numbers for our field. Kind of cool to be reporting this in the first paper, but I, I just think 
this is real world care. And uh, I think will be very important moving forward to understanding severe TBI. I hear you. And I'm sure the audience does as well. As you listed the uh, clinical and demographic variables of the patients enrolled, it is, it is truly real world. One of the most interesting questions that you addressed in this manuscript was where you left off the last time we had you here. And among the many things that you've accomplished in your research portfolio, you've been the senior author on the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines on their recommendations for the care of the pediatric patient. And on the most recent Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, when we interviewed you here on Open Pediatrics, you and Robert Tasker, one of the key messages in the most recent recommendations was that there was not enough information on mannitol for you to make a recommendation. So I was very eager to see the results. And so how was hyperosmolar therapy used across the ADAPT centers? Yeah, that's a really important question. And of the 1,000 patients enrolled, the first thing that struck me, I was really excited to see this because maybe someone was reading the guidelines, you know, 814 of the 1,000 received some form of hyperosmolar therapy in the initial seven days. And as I said, that's certainly reassuring to me because it's the only therapy that had level two evidence in the guidelines. And remarkably, mannitol was only 65 of those 814, mannitol alone. And I can tell you, and I'm sure you know too, Jeff, you go back to 2000 when we were beginning to write the first guidelines, there's no way that would have been the case. I bet it would have been 60 or 70 or more a percent mannitol. And obviously the San Diego group led by Brad Peterson changed that dramatically over the years. And so that was the first thing that struck me was that, wow, mannitol. Now, 225 of the patients received both hypertonic saline and mannitol. So mannitol use wasn't that occult, but mannitol alone, which would have been the standard of care in 2000, I think, has really fallen out of favor. And so I was really excited. Now you have 524 patients that got hypertonic saline, but then, holy smokes, we were just hit right between the eyes. You know, the initial goal of ADAPT was to look at do things like being on an infusion versus getting boluses impact long-term outcome differently, for instance, was a preemptive strike of being on an infusion better than waiting for the ICP to rise and a center that treats with boluses. We thought we'd have a chance with a thousand patients to look at some of these kind of things. But the first thing that hit us is there were 27 different concentrations of hypertonic saline that were used. And uh, that's in the supplemental table there. It's one of the supplemental tables definitely worth looking at. This is really uh, so much for my being proud of the guidelines, given the fact that in 2012, only 3% was recommended. And in 2019, only 3 or 23. And you can see there are 27 concentrations. It's mind-bending. And many of these were, were like homegrown, you know, with hypertonic saline with bicarb and all. I mean, you are talking uh, unbelievable. So I, I say we were overdosed on heterogeneity. So and after panicking a little, when we looked at these results, we had to put our thinking caps on and say, how can we get the most 
out of the hypertonic saline story, at least the first paper. And my thought was, let's compare bolus administration of 3% versus bolus administration of mannitol and look at the very clean data where for each bolus, we had pre and post ICP and CPP. And at the least, I thought this would get data into the guidelines on the use of mannitol, which had been lacking, and allow us to compare in real world use how uh, it happened. And so 518 patients received almost 2,500 boluses, 339 patients with hypertonic saline, 105 with mannitol, and 74 with both that met the criteria. And so this result blows away everything in the guidelines. It's really remarkable what the studies that met criteria for the guidelines were 121 on hyperosmolar therapy in 2012 and 169 on, in 2019. And so I think we are going to be on a much stronger footing for these two therapies, even in the absence of an RCT. Well, that leads us to maybe the most exciting results uh, that you were reporting here. And that is, what were the overall effects of bolus administration of hyperosmolar therapy on ICP and cerebral perfusion pressure? It's interesting that at least the overall effects really weren't the most exciting effects in this study. And this was another eye-opening facet of hyperosmolar boluses in ADAPT. With 2,500 boluses, if you look back at the literature on average, you usually get about a five millimeter reduction. If you look at paper, small case series, you know, whether they give a, a hyperosmolar therapy bolus of mannitol or hypertonic saline, you usually get about a five millimeter reduction. And so when we broke the code uh, with all of these boluses, I thought, wow, we're just going to see this. And Lo and behold, hypertonic saline had a one millimeter reduction overall, and mannitol had an almost zero effect. 0.2 millimeter reduction was not significant. And then on CPP, only about 1.2 millimeter mercury increase for both, and both were significant. And then when we adjusted for confounders, they both were basically equal. And so, wow, we said, yeah, we've got some effects, and this suggests maybe some benefit a little in favor of hypertonic saline, but why such a small effect? And we had a couple of theories about this. One is that we used ICP and CPP values. What you have in ADAPT is hourly values. So you have to look when the bolus was given and you don't have the ICP at the time of the bolus. You have it in the hour before and the hour after. And so you're not actually capturing the actual ICP or CPP at the time of the bolus. And another thing we didn't mention that could play a role too was that, well, the hour before might have been 45 minutes before the bolus was given. And so the next hour is only a fraction of the time and, you know, the osmolar therapies generally take a little bit of time to kick in. So, you know, it's just part of the way you collect data and adapt. I mean, there's so much data. You've got to try to make it feasible for the sites. And uh, so that may have underestimated the effect. And the other thing is that all of us, 
well, you give a dose and you see some kind of effect in, oh, now we're going to put the patient on Q4 or Q6 hour boluses. And, you know, they, you get put on that and you might not have an ICP of 20, you might be 18. And so it turns out that the way that it was assessed, ICP was greater than 20 in only 21.6% of the cases of bolus administration. So I think this shows that, boy, collecting these type of data compared to a small case series does limit your ability to get maybe as granular as you might need to be. And so the first conclusion from this was, wow, a much smaller effect, even though we still could see the effect. Well, you explained the uh, limitations of the methodology there very clearly. Uh, the, the benefit, you know, the benefit of comparative effectiveness is real-world data, but the drawback is perhaps not as precise as you would want. But how did a bolus of 3% hypertonic saline compare to mannitol in the setting of patients with raised ICP? That, to me, this is the money table, table two, or the money slide in the study. And I was really pleased to see the results of this. And uh, when we looked at ICP greater than 20, 25, or 30, the effects were much more apparent. And for hypertonic saline, ranged from about five and a half to over seven millimeters of mercury. And for mannitol, from about two and a half to three millimeters of mercury at those different, if you want to call them crisis levels of raised ICP. And remarkably also, when correcting for confounders adjusted analysis, hypertonic saline outperformed mannitol, even correcting for confounders with ICP greater than 25. It, in uncorrected, it outperformed them for all of those three epochs, but even corrected, it held up. And so again, that I think is a little stronger in favor of hypertonic saline. But this is another thing that again, in real world use, when we give a 3% bolus of hypertonic saline, on average, a dose of five mils per kilo was given, 4.78. In contrast, on average, a half a gram per kilo of mannitol was given. And when you think about that, you think, yeah, those are kind of the regular doses. You know, that's, that's kind of in, in the pocket for a regular dose. And some people would say, well, I give three or I give five or whatever. And mannitol, some people give a half a gram. Some people give a gram. Some people give a quarter gram. But a half probably is reasonable. But I think what most intensivists don't realize is that when you're doing that, you're giving a double dose for osms of hypertonic saline. The milliosms per kilo of that dose of hypertonic saline is 4.9 in contrast to a half a gram per kilo of mannitol, which is about 2.7. And so in real world use, we're a little more bold with the osms that we give with hypertonic saline. And so does that explain this difference? Is that the explanation? Uh, it might be, but what you don't know is that if higher doses of mannitol were used, would they perform better? Would they perform as well as hypertonic saline if you used a gram per kilo of mannitol? My guess is it probably would have a bigger effect, but would there be more complication? We don't know the answer to that. You know, it's really interesting. 
Mannitol has been used for a real long time. And it was used in the era of dehydration therapy. And I think we got really nervous about drying patients out. And so it may be that decades ago, a gram per kilo of mannitol was given, but we ended up lowering it and lowering it. And now are in, are in a dose. Whereas with hypertonic saline, it may be that the doses are what they are because of their temporal difference in the evolution of their development. I don't know the answer to that, but certainly what comes to my mind, the thing that you don't know about though, is that what's the diuresis effect of the two, et cetera. And so I think you just can't jump to the conclusion that, well, just use more mannitol and they would be equal. But in any case, in real world use, you get more bang for your buck if the ICP is higher above 20 uh, with hypertonic saline. Well, you expanded beyond uh, some of the results there in a nice way, because that's what I was really going to ask you. Is this a physiologic explanation that you can think of? And as you're noting, there could be secular trend effects here that have really influenced practice in ways that are hard to sort out with this methodology from physiologic response, from uh, really secular trend dosing response. But of course, that leads to, you know, what additional insight in this study and what are the conclusions and potential implications for future guidelines? As I mentioned, you know, when you last left us in 2019, it was really to kind of announce in really kind of a surprising way. We've all used mannitol for a long time. And probably because of that, there's actually no studies to give any grade of recommendation. Thus, now here's the study and here are the results that you've just presented. So what are the additional insights and conclusions and what are the impact on future guidelines? Those are really good questions. And a couple of other things regarding the additional insight, again, trying to give your audience a little bit more of our thinking behind this. And uh, one of the things we were a little worried about is that the hypertonic saline boluses temporally were given a little bit earlier on average than the mannitol boluses. And uh, you, you know that a reverse osmolar gradient can develop with hyperosmolar therapy over time. You know, with the blood-brain barrier in regions that it's broken, the hyperosmolar agent can leak in. And then when those seal over as flow stops to a region that dies, for instance, you end up with an osmolar load in the tissue and that ultimately leaks back into the tissue and the CSF. And Keith Polderman showed this actually occurs a number of years ago in a paper in critical care medicine. And we've measured it in, a, in some kids also and looked at this. We've never published on it, but it's clearly a phenomenon. So we were a little worried that that might also be biasing in favor of hypertonic saline. But when we looked at the effect of the first bolus of either agent, we did not see a difference and uh, arguing against that. And also, the other thing that's really surprised, what was really surprising was despite this greater osmolar load with hypertonic saline boluses, we did not see higher serum osmosis in the patients treated with only hypertonic saline boluses versus mannitol. And again, that could get back to things like the diuretic difference between the two agents, for instance. And we didn't have fluid balance on every patient. And as you might imagine, with some on infusions, et cetera, it would get very, very difficult to tease apart. But we at least didn't see a higher serumosum. A couple of the other additional discussion points, you know, uh, uh, you could say limitations. Two centers contributed 
40% of the data on the mannitol boluses. So there very much is still a, this center uses this, this center uses that, some centers use a little of both. And of course, another limitation I mentioned earlier is that one of our initial goals was to look at this infusion question of, of, of in essence, is it better to be to use an infusion instead of waiting for spikes in ICP and just couldn't answer that. And uh, I mentioned that although we examined all mannitol doses, because there were only a few that were used, we did not examine all the different doses of even hypertonic saline boluses, but it turns out that 3% was used 75.5% of the time. So we did capture the vast majority of the hypertonic saline boluses. To conclude, I think uh, this is a exciting first look at some of the results that we're going to be in for, for the comparative effectiveness ADAPT trial. If we were worried about practice variability affecting an RCT, boy, we confirmed that in spades with just the first look at this. I think that is really an important point of this. We finally have meaningful data with over 2,500 hyperosmolar therapy boluses of 3% or mannitol, and I think both were associated with beneficial effects, hyperosmolar therapy on ICP and CPP and mannitol on CPP in just regular use, and you could argue that with the correction for confounders, they did not significantly differ in that setting although the effect was modest. And now when you look at where I think most of us are most interested when we're in trouble, what we are doing to prevent herniation, deal with a crisis ICP, at least in real world use, when you use a five mil per kilo of 3% hypertonic saline, it outperformed a half gram per kilo of mannitol. And uh, with the caveat, of course, that the dose of hypertonic saline, if you want to say from an osmolar standpoint, was almost twice as much. And so I think the study, I don't want to speak for the next guidelines because that's why you have a committee to go over these and carefully look at all of the factors uh, that determine the weight, how good the study was, et cetera. But I, I, you know, from having been on the three guidelines committees, I do think that this study is going to importantly uh, influence the next guidelines. I think it's going to certainly strengthen the confidence in the level two recommendation on 3% boluses. I think that's pretty clear. And I think that we do now have some data to support mannitol use. And although in the setting of an ICP crisis, it was, you could argue, outperformed by hypertonic saline, I think this will be positive data for mannitol. I don't think anyone will tie the hands of anyone if they use mannitol. And so I do think this will provide really the first guidelines-based support also for the use of mannitol. And uh, particularly given the fact that some of the centers that used it exclusively were in the in third world, uh, you know, in developing countries. And so I think it could be important in, in that setting. Well, Dr. Pat Gohanek, first author of the comparison of intracranial pressure measurements before and after hypertonic saline or mannitol treatment in children with severe traumatic brain injury, as published in JAMA Network Open in March of 2022. 
on behalf of the uh, ADAPT investigators. Uh, we thank you for uh, being with us on the podcast today. Pat, your career elucidating neurocritical care issues in children, injury mechanisms, treatments, and now uh, with the ADAPT trial of real-world data is another advance from uh, your research platform. And on behalf of colleagues around the world, we salute you for uh, this publication and this trial. And we salute you for your years as uh, Editor-in-Chief, Inaugural Editor-in-Chief, and now Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. And thank you for being with us today. Well, Jeff, thanks for your kind comments. And it certainly, as I said in the beginning, was a great honor to participate in the ADAPT trial. I think this is a groundbreaking trial for our field. And it also is a great pleasure to be invited to participate in Open Pediatrics. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.